Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on February 9th, 2014. Today's message is titled, Finding Home in the Universe, by Dr. Lyle Schrag, and is based on scripture, Psalm 19. Would you pray with me? And gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather together in this place, we recognize I, we, have, we have called you by a very special name, Heavenly knowing that you overarch all the heavens and the earth, and you are so great that there is nothing that goes outside of your control, for you are the Creator, Heavenly Father. And yet we also call you Father. And we recognize that in that you know us, you have made us, and you have loved us, and now you wish to guide us and direct us, for we are your children, even more than just your people. You know us well, and are not so great that we escape your attention, And that, Lord, is an act of grace, and so we call you gracious Heavenly Father. And so into your hands, Lord, we commit to you this time and this place. We pray that by your Spirit you might inhabit our thoughts and draw us even closer to yourself, and that in that we might have a greater understanding of how we shall then live a life according to your creation, according to your desires, according to your plan. And one, Lord, that brings us joy in the fulfillment. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm going to sound a little bit like a professor here at the very beginning and turn to an ancient text of theology. In the opening paragraph of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, the great theologian John Calvin made a very bold statement and listened very carefully in these initial words and marked them down. He says this, Nearly all the wisdom that we possess, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, really consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. That's all there really is to know. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Now, at first, whenever you read that or you think about it, uh, and if it's true, then you might, might assume that we are well on our way as a society because, after all, isn't the great pursuit of our day self-discovery? That second part, people invest a lot of money and they go to extreme lengths to find themselves in order to gain a true knowledge of themselves. So you might assume that at least half of the formula of true and sound wisdom has already been achieved in our day and age. But not so fast. Calvin also continued, he said, it is certain that humans never achieve a clear knowledge of themselves unless they have first looked upon God's face and then descend from contemplating God to then scrutinizing themselves. For, and catch this, we always seem to ourselves to be righteous and upright and wise and holy. The pride is in all of us unless by clear proofs we can stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Do you understand what he's saying in that? There are two parts to sound wisdom. The first is a knowledge of God, and it is a prerequisite for the second, a knowledge of self. You can't have the second, an honest sense of yourself, without having the first, that authentic knowledge of God. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer said the very same thing. He says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? 
because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And as a result, Tozer concludes by saying, a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to the essence of human life, the lives that we live. It's no wonder, then, that you hear that theme coursing its way throughout the Bible. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. In, in Proverbs 1, verse 7. In, in Proverbs 19, verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. The fear, or probably a better translation of that term, is the awesome and the overwhelming sense of God for who he is, is where it all begins. And if you're going to make any sense out of your life, the life that you are going to live, if you're going to have any hope to gain any understanding of who you are, the search begins out there, not necessarily in here, as the saying goes. You can tell I watched the X-Files. The truth is out there. The truth is out there. Where the majesty of God is on full display and everything then falls into perspective from that vision. This morning, I'd like to invite you to join with me at the 19th Psalm. We've heard it read, and if you have your Bibles, open to it and follow along with me as we look into this. Here is where life really does come together. Now, as we turn to the psalm, I want you to note that all we know is that it was a psalm of David. There is, like the psalm we looked at last week, no real attachment to any particular time or event in his life. It is just a psalm of David. But from the very first verse, I get the impression that these words were composed not in a moment as he sat down with pen and scroll or however it was they wrote in that day, but it was something that was composed over a course of a lifetime. And ultimately then, served to produce in him that quality that we find in the Bible. He is the only one, given that name in the Bible, of a being a man after God's own heart. It is a product of a lifetime of education. So listen to the first verse. and It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Linger on that for a thought while. The heavens declare the glory of God. When I read that, I cannot help but think and imagine the process that, that, that led David to compose that particular line. The fact is that David was a shepherd boy who certainly uh, spent his days and nights under the wide open sky. I don't know much about his education, but I have to understand his life. And I can imagine that his last words at night before he went to sleep, laying on the dark Judean wilderness, was looking up in the stars and and so it's obvious he would say, the heavens declare the glory of God. And then you can imagine this shepherd boy, he grew up living out, outdoors on the, in the wilderness. The, the first thought that he would have upon waking would be to see the dawn rising over the Judean desert. And then he would write, the skies above proclaim his handiwork. How many of you have ever laid on your back, staring into a dark summer night, away from the city lights, and have seen all of the stars on full display. It's an overwhelming sense, so much so that you almost feel vertigo, that you're falling up into the stars. It's, It's an overwhelming sense of majesty. The heavens 
declare the glory of God. Now, as I said, I really don't know what David's formal schooling was like, but I would like to think that in this psalm, we have discovered the sum total of his education. And it begins, as Calvin wrote, looking upon the face of God and then descending from God to a scrutiny of himself, as it is with us. So let's look at the first lesson. What do you learn by looking at the face of God, or as I have it on the on the PowerPoint note there, uh, God revealed in majesty. Let's look at that before then we descend to uh, the scrutiny of ourselves. The heavens declare the glory of God, we read, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and all the the words to the end of the world. In him, in them, he has set a tent uh, for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. You can see that dawn in the Judean wilderness. And then like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the other ends of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Let's, let's unpack a few of the thoughts that we find there. First, you get an idea of how eloquent nature can be. You see that happening just with the way uh, the the expressions are are identified. The word declare that is there literally means to narrate or to unfold. To say something in such a way that it sinks in and as it does, all the pieces begin to fit together. It's really uh, literally a picture of a scroll being unrolled bit by bit by bit, line by line, declared in such a way that you cannot escape the full meaning of the message. And for David, in the fields, the scroll of heaven was being unfolded before his eyes every night and every day. It was being laid out before him and all the points were being connected. All of the dots were there, and the picture was on full display. Even more than that, it says that the skies proclaim the works of God's hands. Now, the word proclaim carries the idea of an unmistakable, inescapable message, one that is guaranteed to get your attention and is done in a way that you cannot ignore it. It is like a bullhorn. Have you ever had somebody with a bullhorn right next to you? into your ear. You cannot escape the message. And that is how it is with God. What he has done, he has not only declared and unrolling it, but he has done it in such a way, you cannot escape the message. And David goes on in verse 2 to say that day after day the heavens pour forth speech. That's another expression. The, The word literally means to bubble up like a spring. You, can't un- you, you, you cannot cork God's voice. There is no mute button when God puts himself on display. In verse 3, the message then transcends all of the limitations of human language. And in verse 4, jumps over all of the boundaries that would separate human- uh, humanity from understanding. There is a God, and he is on display. And I like the way verse 5 and 6 describe the movement of the sun with a simple word picture running its course through the heavens like a bridegroom leaving his chambers, like a strong man running his course with joy, rising from the ends of the heaven, completing the circuit to the other end. Nothing 
Nothing is hidden from its heat. You might be tempted to say that anywhere the light shines, the glory of God is on display and can be known. It is so, so obvious. A number of years ago, I was intrigued to read a confession made by Robert Yastrow. He was the first lead scientist of NASA. He was the chairman of the Lunar Exploration Committee. He was the chief of the theoretical division of NASA and the founding director of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies. In his book, God and the Astronomers, he described the intensity behind a scientist's pursuit to understand the creation of matter and energy in the universe. Now, he was not a believer, mind you. Uh, at the very best, he was an agnostic. And he described himself, however, in that book as being an, an, an atheist who had become an agnostic. He was in motion. But he was honest, honest enough to confess this and listen to his words. In the first moment of its existence, the universe was compressed to an extraordinary degree and consumed by the heat of fire beyond human imagine, imagination. The shock of that instant is that it destroyed every particle of evidence that could have yielded a clue to the science scientist's pursuit of the past and ends instead in the moment of creation. The develop, this development was unexpected by everyone except the theologians. They have always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we scientists, he writes did not expect to find evidence for an abrupt beginning. For the scientist who has lived his life in faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad, bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance, and he is about to conquer the highest peak, but as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is there greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Welcome home. You now see God. I read that and I think to myself, yep, here we are. Welcome to the party. Join us and sing the heavens declare the glory of God. It is not your worst nightmare. It is your greatest hope. It is the beginning of wisdom. And according to the theologian John Calvin, you have learned the first and most important lesson where true wisdom begins in the knowledge of God. Now for the second, and here is where it gets personal. As we descend from the knowledge of God, then we then now are able to discover a knowledge of ourselves. For you see, while the heavens declare the glory of God, starting in verse 7, now we find out how God speaks for himself so that we might find ourselves in him. You see, the heavens may declare God's power and glory, but they do not declare his will or his plan or his promise of salvation. They can only say so much, the heavens. God needs to speak further words into our heart. And those lessons require his voice and are learned then through his word. And so David writes in verse 10, the law of the Lord is perfect. And notice what it does to the human. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. And look what it does to the human making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, and look and see what it does to the human. It rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
What does it do? It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In them, in keeping them, there is great reward. I have found the wisdom of my life. Take a moment and look at that list. What do, you, what, do you, what, do you, what do you find when you open the scriptures? Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, and judgments, all of which carry the same divine essence that the heavens have, but only in detail. These are the things that stand the test of time, and they are like iron girders of truth upon which we can build our lives and will not be shaken. Add to that the integrity of the word. Notice and see how the word is described. It is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is true, it is righteous. And each one of those words flow from the character of God. So I suppose it's no surprise that what flows from his character then should have effect on our character. That the knowledge of God would then produce a knowledge of ourselves. And then look at the effect. The effect is wonderful. It restores the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. Can you name any other book or any piece of literature that can do such an effective job in your life? I mean, this leaves Oprah in the dust. And Dr. Phil, too. Toss him in. How effective. David describes the effect as being even better than gold, which is the highest standard of value. It's refined gold. It is the most valuable thing you could ever find. And it's something even better than honey, which was the sweetest thing on earth. It's straight from the honeycomb, and it couldn't get any better. Now, you can't read this without realizing that something very special is happening now here in this psalm between God and man. So let me explain. In the Bible, we've discovered that man was made in God's image. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, The final act of creation came when God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You are made in the image of God. Every single one of us, may you, all of us, are made in the image of God. But the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean I have the potential of being God myself? No. You are in the image of God, not God. What does that mean? We are not made gods, but we are made in his image. And the best explanation I have ever heard of that is that of, of what it means to be an image bearer is that we are like mirrors. For mirrors are image bearers. Think of it. A mirror bears the image of the one who looks into it. And God made each of us so that in being in a relationship with him, we would be able to reflect his image back to him. The problem is, is that when sin struck, it was as if each of us was hit with a ball-peen hammer. And you know what that does to a mirror. It shatters it, it breaks it. If you've ever looked into a, a, a broken mirror that has been shattered, 
You know what it's like. It's like looking at a Picasso painting, isn't it? There's a nose up here. There's an eye down here. There's a chin over there. There's an ear over there. And I have no idea what that is, but it must be something that I have on my face. I need to wash, I guess. I don't know. I look. It doesn't make any sense. I look into that mirror. It has been broken. It is an an image bearer. And God made us in his image. And in reading Psalm 19, I have to realize that he has not changed his mind no matter what sin has done to us, no matter what sin has done to you. To break that image, he has every intention. Look back into the psalm to restore the soul. To make wise the simple. To rejoice the heart and to enlighten the eye so that, as with all of the rest of creation, we would, because of God's work in our lives through Jesus Christ, be able to reflect back to him his character with the same brilliance that you see the stars and the same vibrance that we see in the sun, and that in looking at us, our lives would echo what the heavens declare, the glory of God. That's God's plan. And all that remains is for us to join in with him. And in joining him, David does. He ends the psalm with two words of prayer. Becoming a man or woman after God, this is where we get down to business. This is the prayer that we carry. It begins with a humble confession. And that's where that prayer begins in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is very obvious. I can't. Nor can you. Nor could David. It's as if David is saying, I would never have thought on this on my own, but in looking at the heavens and into the word, my conscience has now been quickened. It's been touched by the Holy Spirit. Remember what Calvin wrote, that humans never achieve clear knowledge of themselves unless they have first looked upon God's face? and then descend from contemplating God into a scrutiny of self. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults, David says. Without even breaking for a breath, I know they're there. And keep me, your servant, from willful sins so that they may not rule over me. And then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The first prayer is a prayer of confession. Placing yourself in the hands of God. And those, are, those, those words take them to heart in prayer. Forgive me, keep me, free me, cleanse me, so that I may be blameless and innocent. Back to the image of the broken mirror. With each of those words, you are asking God to pick up the broken pieces of your life and to recover those things that you thought were maybe lost forever. Those parts of your being that you, 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 you'd given up on. They're beyond repair. And you find yourself maybe at, at that edge of life now where you, you're, you're full of blame. You're so, so beyond innocence. So much of life has, has dissolved in your hands. And you wonder, how does it end? Forgive me. Cleat me. Free me. Cleanse me. Make me blameless and innocent. 
It's an honest prayer that we are invited to pray and that God is eager to hear. A prayer that says, restore me and refine me. And having placed your life and all of its pieces into God's hands, then there is another prayer that comes at the very end. And please note as you read it, it it, it is filled with confidence. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know, for years I have used those words a thousand times primarily as a prayer before I preach, thinking that that's the application. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart uh, be acceptable in your sight. But in looking through the entire psalm, I see them now in context, and it's not quite the same. It is, in fact, so, so much more. For here it becomes a prayer of resolution that each and every one of us can take. It's a bold declaration where everything has come together and it is here where we say, Lord, I want to live live in your sight so that everything about me, my words and my thoughts, everything that translates into action would reflect the glory of God into my world with the same brilliance of the sun and the moon and the stars. And so I firmly plant myself in you for you are my rock and I am yours because you are my redeemer and I am proud to proclaim it. Are you? Would you pray with me? And so, gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we do confess before you that that we have sinned against you in so many ways, and against the very creation that you have desired for us from the beginning of time. And Lord, were you to look at us, you would see that brokenness. And yet, Lord, even as you look at us and see that brokenness, you also look at us with a desire of grace to heal us, to free us, to cleanse us, to restore us. That's your passion, and Lord, it is a passion that could be made no more clear than the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, in going to the cross. So with great thanks in our heart, we now then live a resolution to you, a bold declaration in our words where we say, we want to live now in your sight so that everything there is about us, our words, our thoughts, and everything translate into the action that reflect the glory of God into my world with the same brilliance of the sun, moon, and stars. We are firmly planted on you, for you are our rock. And we are fully yours, for you are our redeemer. And this we are proud to put proclaim in the name and the powerful name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.